Hello, bonjour, entense. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. Former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin grew up in the foothills of Alberta near Pincher Creek and took degrees in philosophy and the law at the University of Alberta. And although she spent most of her professional career in Vancouver and Ottawa, her Alberta roots and her Western roots helped to shape her worldview and her work as a jurist and a writer. In the first part of our conversation, we talked about the impact of her childhood and youth in Alberta and her sense of Alberta identity. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please do. Otherwise, get ready for this second episode, where we focused more on her time in Ottawa, on the difference between the Canadian and American Supreme Court traditions, and on her new career as an author of hard-boiled noir-themed mysteries. So, your eventual arrival in Ottawa, you were appointed to the Supreme Court in 1989 by Progressive Conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. And at the time, you were a very recent widow and a single mom to a young son. So how hard was it for you to uproot your life and support structure from Vancouver and move to Ottawa? Well, it was hard. And, and, and you know, I have to say, I sometimes think, oh, I didn't do as well as I should have. It was a difficult time. But I came through it. And um, and it was, it was fine. I mean, I always had my passion for the law to sustain me. That that never failed. Sometimes the personal sides of things were difficult. Loneliness was difficult. Uh, handling situations of parenting on your own. Uh, by, you know, it went well, though. And I have a wonderful son. He's always been wonderful to me. And uh, so it all has turned out all right. But yeah, it, but, you know, it, it helps you grow. You understand that through the trials that... Uh, you can get through things and uh, and it gives you that understanding gives you a strength uh, to face new things and uh, uh, I think that was my overall experience of it unlike the American Supreme Court which has for generations just had people who graduated from the same handful of elite eastern seaboard law schools Harvard, 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 Yale, Harvard, 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 Harvard. Um, Canada's Supreme Court has long had an emphasis on regional representation, drawing on judges from all across the country, from universities all across the country. How important do you think that regional representation is that we we have on our Supreme Court, the idea that you have people from across the country with different perspectives? Right. Um, I... I think it's it's essential in our Canadian context. I don't know why we're different. Uh, the regionalism in the United States doesn't seem to require regional representation in important institutions. Other things do, like your religious background or your political sway. And, but uh, regionalism has never, as you say, uh, well, at least in, in in the beginning, it had to be part of it because the judges were taken from certain circuits. But that's baroque history. Uh, right now, last last number of decades, regionalism is not important in the United States. It is 
very important to Canadians. And I've asked myself why. I think Canadians expect to see their regents reflected in the Supreme Court. And they fight hard for it, uh, you know, with politicians, with others. And politicians are all aware this is something that theoretically you could uh, override in certain situations. You always have to have three from Quebec, but otherwise you could switch it around and not have anybody from the West, maybe not have anybody from Ontario. But it would, it's unthinkable. It really is. And Pierre Elliott Trudeau made one or two appointments, one appointment where he went out of order, you know, picked somebody from whatever province when it was some other regions. But then he had to quickly even it up. I mean, there was a lot of talk about that and uh, get back to where it should be regionally. Why, why is that? It's in the nature of our confederation. I think we are very much a federation of regions. And each of those regions has strongly developed individual identities yeah. that they want to preserve, whether it's Quebec, that's the prime example, but the Maritimes, they have their own culture, their own cultural identity. Same with uh, uh, the Western provinces, uh, same with Ontario. And while there's lots of diversity within those identities, those identities are so firmly established that they seem to demand um, recognition in our primary institutions. And that's just the way Canada is. And it's, I'm not saying it's good or bad. Maybe America has a less um, uh, cemented idea of regionalism in terms of how the Federation works. I mean, they have lots of regions and re strong regional ties, but they don't seem to relate it as tightly to how their federation works. So you were, of course, the first woman to be named Chief Justice, also the first Albertan, if I can claim you. Um, I you think can. maybe the second. And uh, there are now two Albertans on the court, uh, Mr. Justice Russ Brown and Madam Justice Sheila Martin. And we have a bonus Albertan, uh, Mahmoud Jamal, who grew up in Edmonton. Yeah, I wanted right. to ask you, do you think over the years there has been an identifiable, definable Albertan or Western perspective on the court? I mean, do you think those strong Western judges have have had a, you know, a, a particular way of stamping the uh, the evolution of justice in this country? Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's a very hard question to answer because there's so much dependent on the personality of the of uh, of the person. Um, of 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 uh, whoever is named to that job, I thought Brian Dixon, whom I considered Western in spirit, he had most of his career in Saskatchewan. Um, he was an extraordinary chief justice, and he moved the court from a very traditional Anglo kind of or uh, uh, English common law is what I want to say, a uh, kind of narrow tradition into the modern tradition, uh, accepting the charter and all of that kind of thing in very broad terms and a, and a great jurist. And I think he had uh, an openness of mind and uh, whether that was part of coming from the West, I don't know, um, but uh, he certainly was less bound perhaps by the tradition or the idea of tradition in the law 
than some of the other judges that were on his court from other regions. That was, so the, he's, he's a great example of, of a chief justice who, who, who uh, brought a new idea and a new approach. Uh, I'd have to do more research or have more insight to know whether how that was connected to his to to being a Westerner. Perhaps arguments could be made, but uh, I think you when you get to the Supreme Court uh, uh, of Canada, you take um, you 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 have an understanding of of uh, how people. Would, might be inclined to view an issue where you come from, although there's never uniformity. So it all gets modulated by the views of your other, of your co-justices, and most of all by the law and the precedent and so on. So it's, uh, if regionalism has an effect, it's a very attenuated one in my view yeah. on the Supreme Court. And do you think, I mean, you talked about Mr. Justice Dixon shaking things up. You brought, you presided over such a revolutionary time yeah. in the evolution of Canadian law, yeah. in the evolution of you know the application of the charter. But do you think you also shook up the way the court viewed its role in the country? I think that um, I built that. Chief Justice Dixon said to me when I first came to the court, he said, uh, "It's important that Canadians understand the court." and they understand the judges that sit on it and how we go about our work. And I thought he was 100% right. And in his time, he wasn't, he passed and wasn't, he, had, he retired and then he passed shortly after, but he was making initial steps in that direction. But uh, by the time I got there, Tony Lemaire uh, was uh, somewhat that way, but I don't, it seemed to me when I got there, let me put it that way, that we needed to have a spokesperson who would explain to the Canadians what the court did and how it went about its business. And there were so many misconceptions. Um, people were saying that many, many people were uh, of the view that the court was having too great a role in shaping the law and that they were striking down laws that they shouldn't strike down. And, uh, and they were very anti-charter and uh, the term judicial activism was being floated around like judges were some sort of outlaws who weren't even applying the law anymore, but just putting their own agenda and what, doing whatever they wanted to do. And I thought that's wrong. That is not how we operate. Even though we have a charter and things have changed, we are bound by the law and we take great care to apply precedents and to act reasonably and within proper limits. And, and, and also, I thought people don't understand the role of the court and how it's seized with these very difficult questions. And different Canadians will have radically different views on how they should be resolved. And the court struggles to try to uh, answer those questions in a way that uh, is is true to the law and also socially responsible and 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 grounded in uh, the context of how those questions have arisen. And so I started giving a lot of talks on this and and writing about it and uh, defending the court against charges of judicial activism and things like that. Uh, so that fell to me 
and uh, and I enjoyed doing it. I sometimes took a lot of flack for doing it, uh, but that was fine. I mean, I think every chief justice lives in her or his time, and uh, they they look around and they say, what is necessary to do at this point? What can I do? What should I be doing to make sure the court retains its integrity and its public support and does its job as best it can do it? And they do that. And that's what I saw to be done uh, in my time. I'm speaking to you on uh, Friday, the 25th of February. And just before we started recording, President Joe Biden, the American president, announced his new nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, Katanji Brown-Jackson. American Supreme Court confirmations are always so politically fraught. And in Canada, we, we have quite a different tradition. How important do you think it is to the nature of our Supreme Court that we don't have this kind of partisan political inquisition every time we have a Supreme Court nominee? Well, I think that it's, it's important in the sense that uh, what's happened in the United States is that it's all become very political. They used to have these always, Senate approval, and, and, and you know, uh, 75 years ago, they often didn't even have a hearing. If the person nominated by the president looked like a good person, they would just approve it. And when they did have hearings, they were not very controversial. And they would just said polite things like we do in Canada after the prime minister names somebody. And then we now have an about to um, a nod to the need for the Canadian public to understand who that is and the press and so on. We have a, we have a pre-confirmation kind of hearing when I guess if everything went horribly, prime minister would withdraw his nomination, but uh, no power to approve. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I actually got to had the, had the unique privilege because I was filling in for a colleague who was ill, and I got to be part of the Senate hearing uh, with the latest uh, nominee to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. uh, in which I mostly asked him about the fact that we both went to Ross Shepherd High School in Edmonton. But uh, <laughs> it was it was a very convivial conversation in which people yeah. asked real questions, uh, but they weren't. The no. kind of, I mean, really, inquisition is the best word for it. What happens in yeah. the United States? But, yeah. yeah. So what's happened uh, is that in the last 50 years, um, uh, this uh, hearing process, which used to be controversial and apolitical, has become a very political forum. And that is because uh, the uh, choice of a justice has become a very political issue. Where, which is where the fundamental difference is between Canada and the United States. In the United States, one of the most important things a president is viewed as uh, having to do is choose candidates for the Supreme Court should vacancies arise that reflect the political view of the party that the president is part of. He has to look for somebody who represents the values of the party. And as those values have become more polarized, as we know they have in the last 10 or 20 years, that has become accentuated. So uh, we all saw what happened uh, um, in the latter part of Obama's time when he nominated someone. And and they had a year to prove it, but the Senate used procedural dominated by the other party 
the Republicans used procedural techniques to prevent it even ever coming to pass. And and that was the first time I think that had happened. The uh, Senate usually took it as its duty to be fairly prompt and, and at least look at who the president put forward in a prompt way. But so it's become a very partisan exercise. Does it achieve much? I don't know. Because, you know, if you actually listen to the hearings, apart from pulling out uh, the odd scandal, and we've seen too much of that, which which actually, if the person is confirmed, undermines the authority of the court in a way. Um, but the, if they're asked, how are you going to vote on abortion? They'll say, well, uh, they usually say, we'll see what the new candidate says. Uh, well, you know, I'll decide the cases according to the law. And so I'll have to look at the precedents. And they say the same thing that any jurist would say. So you don't really learn that much about them to how they will decide the cases. But nevertheless, there's that perception now, the person has to come from a certain political side of the, uh, of the political branch and a political party, be affiliated with those values, liberal on the one hand, very conservative on the other. And then they go to it in the hearing process. And uh, which, which, which is a further reflection of that fundamental idea that is firmly implanted now that judges should represent a certain set of values on, and a certain party even on the political spectrum. And that's not the case in Canada. In Canada, you, I, w I had appointments and promotions by uh, conservative and liberal prime ministers and my party affiliation, which was non-existent anyway, but even my values and things never, never, I think, came into that. They just were looking for the best jurist. Your years on the court and your years of chief, as chief justice were so revolutionary. They did so much to shape the law, to rewrite the law. And you heard so many important cases, wrote so many important decisions. Uh, my daughter's a law student. And she said to me when I told her I was speaking to you, she said, it's really strange that I've, you know, I've read so many McLaughlin decisions. It's hard to remember that she's like a real person you can have a conversation <laughs> with. <laughs> but I just want to focus on one case right now. Because it's one where your former role of chief justice and your new role as an author of hard-boiled mystery detective stories and my role as a senator all intersect. And that's Carter v. Canada, mm -hmm. which was the landmark decision on medical aid in dying. The court in Carter found that the prohibition of physician-assisted death violated the constitutional rights of competent adults who were suffering intolerably as a result of grievous and irremediable medical conditions. But when the government initially rewrote the law in response to that ruling, it allowed medical aid in dying only in cases where death was imminent, reasonably foreseeable, which mm -hmm. is not what the Supreme Court said. No. And just last year, when the Senate debated Bill C-7, which was supposed to bring Canadian law more in line with Carter, the government refused to accept a Senate amendment that would have allowed people who might be facing dementia to write advanced directives. And I bring all this up because your latest legal thriller, Denial, hinges on just that point. Mm -hmm. So this is a very, very long preamble to say, do you feel more able to criticize the government response to Carter by having your characters voice and act out that criticism? Is it cathartic to write your frustrations into your yeah. novels? It was. And it was an issue that I cared deeply about. And, uh, you know, I still don't feel I, I should get out there and make political pronouncements uh, on whether, you know, my decision has been properly 
uh, applied by the government or adopted or whatever. You know, I, that reticence of being a judge doesn't allow me to do that in a straightforward policy didactic sense. But through fiction, you can explore different facets. And I did try in the book to present all points of view. And you can have one character taking, you know, a radical stance on one hand and another person saying, no, it should never happen. And then it puts before the reader the different options and the reader can kind of work it through and I, uh, for themselves. And, and, but you're not telling them this is what you have to believe and this is right and this is wrong. And I found that a very comfortable way to explore this extremely complex and difficult issue. Because you also create a, a character, a human being who's going through a terrible, yeah. painful death and facing a dementia diagnosis. And so, you know, this is not a hypothetical. No. This, and this, I, this becomes a real story of a real person. Yeah. And people need to understand the reality. I mean, basically, we all have to try to better understand each other's realities. And, when, and you as a legislator, I'm sure, are very aware of that. You have to try to put yourself in the shoes of the person who is suffering or the person who feels on the other side of it, a moral compunction against this and try to appreciate all those views and then come up with the right decision. It's not easy, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's something I think legislators, certainly something courts have to do. As a judge, I always tried to put myself in the position of both sides just to imagine where they were coming from and make sure I grasped the essence of what they were talking about. Then I it didn't mean I had to accept it, but I had to at least listen and try to imagine and understand it. You have, as I say, embarked on this third career as a, a writer of hard-boiled detective fiction. And, you know, you have not created a Miss Marple-like, you know, nice elderly lady detective. <laughs> this is this is kind of in a noir, a noir tradition on the mean streets of Vancouver. Yeah. So I, I guess I wanted to know why, why, why this voice? Why this genre? And are there going to be more adventures for Jilly yeah. Trump, your, why your crime solving dete- your, your crime solving lawyer? Yeah, why the voice? Uh, I guess I'd been fascinated uh, with the idea of portraying a feisty, uh, if you want to use the word, pretty tough, uh, but very good uh, female defense attorney. Uh, I was tired of just reading books where females were presented as victims, where they were presented as weak or overcoming this problem or that problem. Now, this, this, she does have a lot of problems, but she's gutsy and she works through them or ignores them or pushes on. And sometimes that's a problem for her, too. She should be more introspective. But that's the kind of person I felt that the, that if I was going to write some fiction, that's the kind of thing I'd like to put out there for women. So you create kind of a role model that young women could say, yeah, you, you don't have to be uh, wallowing in problems all the time. You can actually get out there, get a job done and do it well, even though it's tough in a man's world. Uh, why the genre? Because it's all, I, I'd always wanted to write fiction, uh, give my a probably crazy idea, but no doubt a crazy idea. But I uh, that I knew that I would I, I would not ever uh, be able to write literary fiction. Uh, and, but I was fascinated uh, just by by what happened in the courts and how cases worked out and how different cases I'd had as a lawyer or, or watched as a judge. The drama in it all. I was fascinated by that, and I thought I'd like to 
to do that. And yet, and, and at the same time, and it does allow you, as we've just been saying, to discuss some pretty serious issues. And uh, are there more? Your third question. Uh, yeah, I'm working on one now, which which uh, which will come out, and uh, we'll we'll uh, see uh, where that goes. So uh, I'm hoping for at least one more Julie Truitt. All right. So you're back west now. You mm-hmm. you know you, you you left Ottawa when you left the court. Yeah. Uh, you've come back home to Vancouver, and the Julie Truitt novels they really are. I mean, they're very grounded in Vancouver, the particularity of the place. Yeah. These yeah. are not generic novels yeah. set in a generic city. No, um, they're they're very rooted where you are. So, how important, I guess, to you is that sense of being rooted in the West, of being rooted in in Vancouver? Very important. I, I've always felt very strongly about roots, and uh, I I love to go back to Pincher Creek. I love to go back to Edmonton, where I spent ten years. Uh, I love Calgary. I never lived there long, but it it's it's a wonderful. I feel very at home, um, and and place is very important to me. So I don't think I could write a book uh, like, for example, Scott Toro has, where it's just this generic midwestern town. Um, the the place shapes the characters and the characters shape the place and I like exploring that relationship. This has been an absolute privilege and a delight. I'm so glad I had the chance to speak to you. I'm so glad I had the chance to speak to you in this rather historic moment in Canadian and world history and uh, I, I am looking forward to the next Julie Truett novel. Thank you so much for Thank taking you. the time to be part of Alberta Unbound. Senator, it's been a great pleasure, and thanks for bringing me back to my Alberta roots and their importance. And that was the second and final part of my conversation with the remarkable Albertan, British Columbian, and Canadian, Beverly McLaughlin. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings, and written and presented by me, Paula Simons, Independent Senator from Alberta. Thank you for listening. Merci, and hi-hi.